Welcome to this, uh, the last in our current series of Deep Fried Planet. We end on a high note or a low note, depending on how you choose to see it, with today's topic, biodiversity. 2010, as some of you will know, is the International Year of Biodiversity, the year when we, as humans, are supposed to wake up to the fact that our own survival is intimately and irrevocably linked with the survival of every other living species on this planet. This year we were supposed to make serious commitments to halt the human activities such as habitat destruction and accelerating climate change that are causing this this hemorrhaging loss of plants and animals worldwide. Now if you're like me or inclined to get a bit poetic on this subject, nature is the place from which we all come, it's the place to which we will all be returned and in the sometimes interminable decades in between. It's the source of everything that we have from our daily bread to our Velcro trainers and yes, even our iPhones. When we destroy it, we destroy ourselves. So with the uh, year nearly over, how well are we doing in averting this insane act of self-destruction? My guests today may be able to give us a clue. With me uh, down the line on the phone and fresh off the plane from the recent International Conference on Biodiversity in Nagoya, Japan, is Dr. Andrew Mitchell of the Global Canopy Program. His organization has just published The Little Book of Biodiversity Finance, a compendium of creative ways to get much-needed cash flowing into conservation. And in the studio is Juliet Jowett, Environment Editor at The Observer. She's here to talk about the newspaper's new piece-by-piece -piece campaign, which encourages and inspires each of us to stop habitat destruction in the UK. You are both very welcome. Um, Andrew, I'm going to come to you first, if I may. You, uh, you've just come off the plane from Japan, where hopefully some sort of agreement has been reached about how to save the world. Can you tell me a little bit about it? Uh, well, it's another one of these sort of tortuous UN negotiations, which people have become familiar with, perhaps now with the climate negotiations going on uh, under the UNFCC, that's the, the Climate Convention. And uh, this one is the Biodiversity Convention, which is designed to help protect life on Earth. There's actually a third one on deserts as well. And all three of these were created in the Great Rio Conference almost 20 years ago uh, to try and you know make life better on Earth. And well, the Biodiversity Conference, uh, thousands of people gathering in Nagoya in Japan and trying to uh, bash out an agreement to try and stem the loss of biodiversity worldwide. And biodiversity really means life on Earth, all those things from huge trees to creepy crawlies uh, that uh, really sustain life, including ourselves. And I guess, you know, the short answer is that we're doing a really bad job at trying to stem the loss of biodiversity. Uh, one of the major goals was to reduce this biodiversity loss by this particular meeting, and they've, uh, singularly governments have failed to do that. We're losing biodiversity very rapidly all around the world. And so this was a real wake-up call meeting to see what uh, could be done. 
to really make a difference over the next decade or so. Okay. Now, as I understand it, the UN has said that it wants to, to halt this biodiversity loss by 2020. The International Union for Conservation of Nature says in order to do this, we need money, and lots of it, around $300 billion per year in financing. Now, your group has calculated that we are only spending around $40 billion, so that is a huge gap. So please tell me how we begin to bridge that. Well, I think, you know, a lot of it is to do with, with money. Uh, how can you expect governments to stop biodiversity loss if, if there isn't uh, enough money in the kitty to do that? Um, and where does this money come from and how much is needed? And uh, we uh, undertook a, a study, the first one of its kind, to try and calculate, well, how much money is actually being spent on biodiversity worldwide? Uh, and then to uh, look at what's actually uh, needed uh, and what the value of biodiversity and its ecosystem services might be. Well, looking at it, we, we've come up with a figure of somewhere between 36 and $38 billion uh, a year is being spent on biodiversity protection. Uh, now, the interesting thing is that almost 54% of that is spent in three regions of the world. That's Europe, North America, and China. And they're spending that money on domestic programs um, such as the land program and protected areas in America or huge uh, water ecosystem services program in China. Uh, but very little of that money is actually going to developing countries where most of the biodiversity is. Only about 15% of the total is being transferred from rich countries to poor countries to help them protect their biodiversity. So if we're going to solve this problem in the future, far more money is going to have to flow from rich countries to poor countries because uh, that's where the biodiversity is. And of course, then the next thing is to look at, well, how much do we think we need and you just quoted the IUCN report calling for some 300 billion. Others have been at around about 100 billion. Uh, and then what's the value of this biodiversity? That's an, uh, something that has really been difficult to, to um, calculate. And there's several reports that came out this year, uh, the most notable one being the TEEB report. That's the Economics of Ecosystems and Biodiversity produced by the United Nations Environment Program. And that really calculates that the value of what biodiversity gives us is literally in the trillions of dollars each year. That could be pollination services provided by bees, which if you took away the bees, you wouldn't have the crops in the fields being pollinated anymore, through to uh, water coming in, uh, being regulated into uh, rivers by forests or rainfall that's generated and redistributed by forests, these sorts of services. If you took that away, uh, and you burn forests and put all that smoke up in the atmosphere, the cost would be enormous. So, summing that up very simply, the money we're spending today is in the tens of billions, the money we need tomorrow is in the hundreds of billions, and the value that we're losing is in the trillions. And the question is, and the big debate is, how do you bridge those gaps? Now, I'm going to bring Juliet in before we sort of get into more specifics here, because you're talking about um, bridging the gaps with money. Piece by piece, as I understand it, is asking people to sort of take action in some way to, to look at biodiversity loss in the UK. Yes, I mean, set against the sort of numbers that Andrew's talking about globally, um, piece by piece seems very, um, very sort of small scale, uh, ridiculously so almost. But um, I think it is very important because it highlights uh, at least one of the very uh, key examples of what's going on. 
the one of the interesting figures to contrast against what Andrew's been talking about in terms of the value of biodiversity um, and the sort of money we're spending on it now um, around the world is that uh, TEEB, uh, that uh, Andrew's just mentioned, the Economics of Ecosystems and Biodiversity, commissioned a report uh, last year from TrueCost, which is a London-based consultancy, and they found that the damage done in 2008 by just the biggest 3,000 companies in the world was over $2 trillion. So that's you know many, many, many times what we're spending on um, preserving biodiversity or even enhancing it. We at The Guardian, we're trying to... We, we do a huge amount of stuff and work on uh, the big global problems, uh, obviously particularly climate change um, running up to last year and, and throughout this year as well. Um, and I think we were very keen to try and remind people that we do, although we're a national paper with now a very big international readership, we also are very concerned about the things on the ground, the local, the, the specific, because our feeling was that most people are interested and engaged and we were trying to think about how to get more people engaged with global environmental issues and we felt that many people come to these things from a concern with the local, with the specific, with what they see around them in their day-to-day -day life. Piece by Piece is really an attempt to draw attention to what is probably globally and certainly in the UK the second biggest cause of destruction of biodiversity and natural space which is development so the number one cause globally and in the UK is intensive farming the second biggest cause is development and the idea is to get people and and many people have already although I suspect there are hundreds if not thousands of more examples we could have people are uploading examples of describing a space that they care about. It might be a cricket green, so it's sort of semi-natural. It might be uh, a piece of a common ground. Um, you know, it might be a little wildlife corridor along a riverside. It might be quite a big space. And we, one I uploaded recently was about a peat bog. And in all cases, they are then there is a specific development threat. So we're not talking about just the impact of congestion or the impact of traffic growth. We're talking about building a clubhouse, building a housing development, um, sometimes a quarrying, an application to quarry a piece of land that hasn't been quarried before. And what we're trying to do is not say no development should ever happen or this specific development shouldn't go ahead, but build a map around Britain or, or the UK, sorry, of the multiplicity of these things and how piece by piece these little tiny bits add up to quite a big impact on our natural world. You very nicely described it as death by a thousand cuts to the environment, which I, which I, I really, really like. And here's where I am troubled, and, and both of you can pitch in on this one. Um, I, I recognise the absolute truth about um, what you say about finance, Andrew. I recognise what you're saying, Juliet, about um, you know the, the two trillion dollars worth of damage that business does. Nothing in this world happens without money, and um, I'm just a little bit concerned about the marriage of business and biodiversity. In particular, I think I worry a lot about corruption um, because where there's money, there is often corruption, and and it's particularly true in the developing countries that you mentioned, Andrew, um, where most of our biodiversity is. Um, how do we finance this through, let's say, business, um, and and keep that corruption out of it and make sure that we're actually moving forward in a positive way? Well, I guess if I had an answer to that, um, everybody would be beating a path to my door, <laughs> uh, and lots of governments too. Uh, this business of, what I, of institutional weaknesses in governments is really difficult to solve, and it to, in part sometimes it's a function of poverty. Very poor people who are on very low salaries are often, um, you know, they're not so shy at taking a backhander. Uh, to help keep their families going. That's at a sort of more middle-ranking level and quite different from the 
flagrant and enormous corruption of bank accounts in Switzerland and so on. It's really difficult to solve, and I won't deny that uh, you know just providing large sums of money doesn't mean to say it's going to go to the right places. But it is a start, and if you're trying to convince the finance ministers of uh, developing nations that it's in their national interest to protect biodiversity as a means of alleviating poverty rather than to destroy it, you have to come up with a pretty convincing economic argument because today all the arguments are that, for example, if you convert your standing tropical forests, which no one will give you a cent for, uh, into a cattle ranch, a palm oil uh, plantation, or a soy ranch, you will generate a lot of money for the country which will help alleviate poverty, and it has done. And there's nothing, you know, you've got to come up with a convincing argument to treat it otherwise, and that w means money, because huge amounts of money are made by these uh, industries, and the problem is that your standing tropical forest is sitting there doing its job, storing carbon, sucking it out of the atmosphere, helping to provide rain. There's no market for that. No one will give a cent for it, so they're converted effectively for free. And it's this lack of understanding about the way we use nature, which we might call natural capital, in wealth creation uh, that means that we don't pay the true cost of things. So, as I say, when you get a bouquet of flowers in the garage that might have been grown in Kenya, the collateral damage caused by over-fertilization, destroying the lakes uh, in lakes like Naivasha in Kenya, are not included in the price of the flowers that you're buying in the garage. And if we did, we could probably look after the lakes in Naivasha much better. And it's all of this sort of understanding of the economic costs of destroying biodiversity that we need to understand much better if we're to be able to change this process. Juliet, I saw you take a, a sharp and take a breath there. Uh, no, no, not at all. I mean, I just wanted to really build on something that Andrew was saying, uh, or the point he was making, really, which is that um, corruption is really but a tiny problem, I think, compared to the perfectly legitimate destruction of biodiversity in the natural world that goes on day in and day out. Um, I mean, I refer you back to the figures I gave you about the true cost estimates of the the, the impact of the biggest businesses, and I understand, although I haven't actually seen the report myself, that their estimate for the following year was actually a lot bigger. Um, and this is really what the, the, the UNEP report, the Economics of Ecosystems and Biodiversity, and its leader, Pavan Sukhdev, were trying to address, really. They, they wanted this to be the stern of biodiversity, to cause kind of international headlines about the cost of destruction and how you know, and, and the sort of value, they're trying to sort of make the point globally about how these this biodiversity wasn't just something pretty to look at and the birds and the bees weren't just some sort of airy-fairy idea, but they, they were rooted in our economy and in our society. And, you know, I think some people with a more deep green view had a kind of problem with almost putting, you know, f um, putting numbers and finances onto these things um, in a way that sort of almost took them far too much into the realm of economics. But you know, Pavan Sukhdev is someone who obviously deeply understands it from a much more personal and uh, natural world view, but he, he can also see the benefit of explaining to people who only understand it this way that you do have to recognise that these things are fundamental to our economy. Um, the thing that worries me, though, is that there wasn't, as far as I could see, and I wasn't in Nagoya um, uh, because I'm heavily pregnant <laughs> and couldn't fly that far, but... Um, the, there was not an apparent, very, very clear number in the way that um, Lord Nicholas Stern gave. He said it will cost uh, 1 to 2% of GDP to deal with the problem now, 
and it will cost us 5 to 20% of GDP if we don't deal with it in the future. And that, that was a very kind of clear figure people could relate to, and it became a 1 in 20 equation, which arguably is a 2 to 5 equation, but nonetheless is still, by any measure, even at 2 to 5, most businesses would invest in something that was going to reward them at that level. Um, the concern is that actually the message didn't come across quite as powerfully as the Stern report because it didn't have this very, very sort of simple, uh, easy-to-grasp number, um, which is a shame because actually the simple, easy-to-grasp numbers are very easy to argue with and very easy to unpick, um, as people tried to do with Stern. But I was particularly worried, and I'm sorry to come back to the UK, but I do often feel that if we can't take this seriously in the UK and show leadership in a country with as much wealth as we have, and who has created so much of the historic problem as well that um, you know we really can't expect other people to share the leadership either. Um, and with I think on the very day that uh, one of the Nagoya meetings was going on, the Treasury published its spending review, and the very first line of the uh, description of how DEFRA was going to be run in future was saying that it would focus its spending on areas of the best economic returns. And the whole point of the T report and Caroline Spellman, the Environment Secretary, and others including, I believe, David Cameron, have spoken very eloquently about this, and certainly Oliver Letwin has. The whole point was to try and explain that economics doesn't value the environment properly, um, even you know, if we were to take quite a selfish view of the value we get from it. Um, so it concerns me that we haven't really taken that message on board. I think it's a very good point that, uh, that Juliet makes, and, and I, I can illustrate it another way, and I, I'm not advocating one thing or another, but just raising questions here. Um, uh, the previous government uh, elected to spend some £15 billion on the development of carbon capture and storage, uh, industrial carbon capture and storage. In other words, if we want to have cheap electricity in this country, country that doesn't release lots of CO2 into the atmosphere, the idea is that you'll cr create a machine, a new kind of power station that captures the CO2 before it's released to the atmosphere, uh, liquefies it and puts it in holes underground, perhaps under the North Sea, where we took the oil out of. Now, the cost per tonne of carbon doing, for doing that is going to be somewhere between, I don't know, 100 to 400 pounds. And uh, whereas the, and, and we're, we're committing you know, billions of pounds to develop that technology. No one's ever done it before. It'll take at least 15 years. Now, look at what a tropical forest does for us, biodiversity here, sitting there uh, globally, tropical forests, uh, they absorb about a tonne of, ton of carbon out of the atmosphere um, every hectare per year. So that's about a billion tonnes being taken out of the atmosphere uh, per year by forests for free. And the amount of money our government has committed to help stop deforestation which is destroying that machine, that gigantic machine that's keeping our atmosphere clean, is about 300 million pounds. And it can do it for free. So it's kind of odd, isn't it, that you know, you've got this wonderful natural machine that's been helping to keep our atmosphere clean for millions and millions of years, and we put really small change into protecting that existing natural process, which would have huge additional benefits of protecting biodiversity and looking after the livelihoods of the poor, and we invest billions in creating a new technological solution in 15 or 20 years' time, which will store a tonne of carbon under the ground, a tonne of CO2, which adds none of these extra benefits. And I'm just saying it's odd that we make these decisions, and 
it's, uh, we, we need to think much more carefully about how we use our, our money over the next 20 years or so. There's like a billion points to pick up on there. I don't even know where to begin. Um, particularly the idea that, that you know our focus on carbon as the single thing that's going to save us um, environmentally is just so wrong when there's, there's so much else going on. But um, as a layperson, I feel like my head is spinning at the moment. I mean, what what I'd like to know is is can you give me an example, Andrew, of something that really has worked already and that might work if we upscale it a bit in terms of finance? Well. Um I guess, you know, what Tessa was talking about earlier, piece by piece and things, you know, I'm a great believer in that every little step helps. Everything, you know, whether you've just got a garden pond in your garden that you choose to keep for the little frogs that might come and use it and the dragonflies in the summer, that's really important. The fact that so many homes and gardens in Britain now are a haven for birds, um, which have no longer got a place to go in the countryside, our gardens and suburbs are providing a, a wonderful opportunity for bird life to exist. But of course, what we've got to look at is the vast amount of farmland in our country where you're getting a crash in bird life. And uh, there has been, a, a, I think another thing that wor is working there, of course, is, <coughs> is there's been a massive change in the way subsidies are used in Britain, uh, in that Farm, farmers are getting paid now not for production, i.e. the more cows per acre you can put out there, the better. Uh, they're, f they're paid for environmental services so that it's not all about stocking rates, it's about also protecting the countryside. And a lot of the money that was uh, going into farm payments is now going to keep strips. Uh, if you go into the countryside, you can see them around the edges of fields. They're large areas which are kept for wildlife, putting hedgerows back that were uh, formerly used to get grants for taking them out, well, they're going back, more woodland and so on. These payments are creating better habitat for wildlife, and uh, that, that could, over the long term, uh, produce a lot of benefit to our countryside. But I think the question we have to ask ourselves, too, is we look at our own fields here, now driven by gigantic machines with one person. The farming communities have all but disappeared from the countryside. And in my village pub, it's not lots of red-faced, ruddy farmers anymore at the weekend. There's lots of townies coming down uh, from, from big cities who are in the pub. And uh, it, it are, are not only have we lost the farming community from the fields, but we've also lost a lot of the wildlife. And we have to ask, is this giving us the kind of culture and lifestyle we really want? Uh, it certainly isn't in terms of biodiversity. And why are we doing it anyway? Well, we're doing it to produce really cheap food so we can go out and spend even less of our uh, weekly income on feeding ourselves compared to what we used to do years ago. But the cost, the hidden cost, is an enormously changed countryside and an enormously changed wildlife in our own country. And I've just raised the question, is that really getting us where we want to go? But as you, as you say, um, we have to put a value on this, apparently, these days before we can um, understand and appreciate these, these services. I mean, isn't that a bit sad? Isn't it a bit sad that we've kind of reached that point where we have to put a, a, a dollar value on something before we can say, um, yes, I value this thing? I think it is a bit sad, actually. Um, and I often start in my talks and lectures on this with a picture of the mo a most beautiful grasshopper in the rainforest, um, which is just like a work of art. And uh, the big problem is no one's going to give you a billion dollars for a bug. You know, a magnificent butterfly on its own will never outbid the Mona Lisa. And both of these, we're paying existence values. We pay a lot of money for the existence value of 
the Mona Lisa, even though we might never go to, the, uh, to, to Paris and see it in a museum. But we don't apply the same value, the existence value, to wildlife. People will not put their hands in their pockets to do it. And as a result, business, and it is largely business and to some extent government, will overcome that existence value by placing a business value on it. Yeah. Uh, and that defeats biodiversity worldwide. And therefore, if we're going to turn that around, we can go on wringing our hands for another 30 years and say it's really, really important to save it because of its existence value, or we can take a risk and do something different and try new and innovative methods and, yes, find new ways of valuing this stuff and bringing the money in, money in to protect it. And I think the risk you have to assess is that going on as we are is a bigger risk, in my view, than trying something new. I have to say, I, 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 it all makes sense, um, but having sort of looked at the, the press coverage of Nagoya and what have you, I felt that there wasn't a whole lot of good news coming out of it. I don't know. Was there, Juliet, do you think? Well, there was, um, there was something that actually wraps up a lot of what Andrew's been talking about and we've been talking about, about putting values on things, but taking it from a slightly different perspective. Um, and interestingly, I think they very much learnt from the mistakes of of uh, the climate change negotiations that been going on, obviously, uh, last year in Copenhagen and this year in Cancun. This was an initiative put together by the World Bank and the United Nations Environment Programme, which is to encourage five or six developing and five or six developed countries to agree to work together to come up with a cohesive and agreed way of preparing national account green national accounts that have a look alongside the financial wealth that we created and the... Um, the measures like GDP that we're very used to looking at, look at also the value and destruction or accretion of the environment over that year. Um, and now obviously there are a huge number of assumptions that are going to go into this and an awful lot of debate to be had, but they've set a very kind of firm timeline of three to five years to prepare the first 10 to 12 national accounts along the same measures. They're hoping within another three to five years to encourage a couple of dozen more to join them. And then I think they're hoping by then it will become uh, accepted global thing and India stepped forward and I think this is really interesting they're an enormous country huge economy potentially a much bigger task than almost anyone but China to fulfill these kind of ambitions and yet they stepped up at Nagoya and became the first country in the world to agree to take part in this and I think that was a fantastic piece of leadership and I think that the initiative is is very well thought through in being limited enough to but potentially succeed without trying to get every country in the world to sign up to something they don't know what they're doing, which is what they did at Kyoto and they've done before at other conferences. And yet having someone like India on board shows that it's a really, really ambitious project as well. Um, I think that's amazing. I wanted to know, do, do, are, amongst those steps of for valuing um, the environment, do we also include health in that? Because, of course, there's been an enormous amount of, of research into how simply being in nature actually improves our health. And I haven't seen any mention, by the way, of how it simply improves us, improves our health and well-being. Um, Anybody? I, well, I, my feeling is, and Andrew might know better, that the TEAB report definitely considered this as an issue, how easy it was to put specific values on it, I don't know. I know that with every single issue they came up with, whether it was... Um, you know, uh, recycling carbon or, or, or cleaning water or preventing soil erosion, or as Pavan Sukhdev talks very eloquently about, the, the sort of simple either spiritual or emotional or health benefits of being in a beautiful environment or having access to a beautiful environment, even if you can't go to it, because that can be very important, just to know it's there for you. 
Um, and I know that they looked at very many different ways of trying to put values on these things. For example, how much people would pay to go and act, you know, to enter into a nature reserve somewhere in the world, how much people spend on ecotourism, where you're actually perhaps living in an area or staying in an area which is otherwise fairly untouched and those sorts of things. So certainly work's been done on it, but obviously it is a lot harder. I think the health side of this is important and often, often overlooked. And um, again, coming back to tropical forests, because it's one of my favourite places. I spent 35 years working in tropical forests and trying to save them and as best we can and persuade governments to do the same. But I mean, you, you go, I, I was once sitting down with a, um, uh, an Indian uh, shaman in the Amazon and uh, he said, um, you know, I feel really sorry for you guys because uh, wherever you are in your country, you just have to pay for everything. Well, I, uh, I can't get to a rainforest today, um, and we have come to the end of our program, very sadly. I think we probably could have gone on for another couple of hours, but I, I may actually go out and have a nice walk after this um, and just sort of appreciate my local park. That is it from us until January. Uh, I think we have maybe a Deep Fried Planet special coming up sometime mid-November where we're talking about ecocide and uh, the law. So please keep an eye out for that, and in the meantime, I... Keep your footprints small and keep sane, and we'll see you very soon. Bye. Thank you.